Next, the golden days of radio. This is Frank Brzee welcoming you to the golden days of radio. Great moments from radio programs of the past with the world's most famous personalities. Those memorable moments when everyone listened to enjoy the make-believe world of radio. On this program, we are featuring Orson Welles, a brief scene from the most famous radio show of all times, War of the Worlds, plus the final Houdini seance. October is Halloween month, and I thought it might be fun to devote this program, at least in part, to spooks, goblins, and, and what have you. On Halloween night, October 31st, 1936, the most famous seance of all time took place right here in Hollywood. This was the final Houdini seance. Here's George Boston to describe this famous broadcast. Houdini, the greatest showman that ever walked this earth, died October 31st, 1926. Prior to his death, he was seeking out and exposing fraudulent spirit mediums. He boasted that there was nothing that a spirit medium could produce by way of alleged psychic phenomena that he could not reproduce by trickery. Despite this, he took no chances. He and his wife, the late Beatrice Houdini, resolved between them that whichever one died before the other, that one would try to contact the survivor. They further agreed upon a secret code this was decided upon to prevent fraudulent mediums or magicians from claiming that they were able to contact either one of the Houdinis. For nine years after Harry Houdini's death, she tried to reach him. Once she seemed to believe that Arthur Ford, the celebrated spirit medium, had actually reached her husband. Later, she decided she had been mistaken, that Mr. Ford had not received the real code message. There were, during those years, Almost daily reports of Houdini's spirit visiting mediums all over the world, but not a single instance could actually be proven. It is notable, however, that Houdini definitely did not contact the one living person he had loved most, his wife. Thus it went till October 31st, 1936. This was the 10th anniversary of Harry Houdini's death. After this date, Mrs. Houdini was to stop searching the tenth seance was to be the final one. The roof of the Knickerbocker Hotel in Hollywood, California, was rented for the occasion. Now, the Knickerbocker is just about one block from the intersection of Hollywood and Vine, the movie capital's most fabulous streets. Here is the actual voice of Dr. Edward Saint, recorded during the seance on that memorable night, October 31st, 1936. Ladies and gentlemen, in this cathedral-like atmosphere tonight, I wish to remind you that this is a most solemn occasion for the close friends that have gathered here. That the zero hour of the 10th anniversary of our departed friend is fast nearing the end. We wish it distinctly understood that in this last and final attempt, we are interested in Houdini coming to us instead of to a stranger. We are crying to high heaven, to the powers that be. We are crying in one mighty magnetic voice from every corner of the earth. 
and the hearts and minds of the Mutus are centered here tonight. We want the evidence, the truth, in the name of humanity and love. If there is communication from the great beyond, come through with the evidence. Then followed calm and silent meditation, and again a tense and dramatic soul pleading, in which Mrs. Houdini joined Dr. Saint. But no sign from Houdini. At last, Dr. Saint, in a voice that broke and filled with emotion, asked, Mrs. Houdini, the zero hour has passed. The ten years are up. Have you reached a decision? Yes. Houdini did not come through. My last hope is gone. I do not believe that Houdini can come back to me or to anyone. After faithfully following through the 10-year Houdini compact, using every type, medium, and seance, it is now my personal and positive belief that spirit communication in any form is impossible. I do not believe that ghosts or spirits exist. The Houdini shrine has burned for 10 years. I now reverently turn out the light. It is finished. Good night, Harry. Beatrice Houdini turned, and with Dr. Saint left the roof, and suddenly a long, low, distant rumble of thunder was heard. It began to rain. Those skies had been clear but a few moments before. It rained just long enough to wet everyone on the roof of the Hollywood Knickerbocker Hotel. And then it stopped, and didn't rain again all evening. To people who do not live in California, this may not seem strange. But California does not have showers, as do the East and Midwest. The country out here is rainless for months. And when rain comes, it rains for days. A brief heavy rain is an unheard of phenomenon. Was that a sign? I recall a very dear friend of mine, a magician who was with me on the roof at the time of that seance, stating as he left the roof. Houdini wasn't that sort of man. Houdini was too big of a man to come back and shake insignificant little bells, to write his name on a piece of slate, or to toot horns. Harry Houdini was a dynamic personality. Harry Houdini was a man of great ego. Harry Houdini was a man of great force. Harry Houdini, if he could return, would not have returned as a horn tooter but perhaps as something dynamic, as something great, as something forceful, perhaps as a drop of heaven's rain. Wow. On the evening of October 30th, 1938, international motion picture star Orson Welles broadcast what was to become known as the most famous single broadcast of all time. Yes, on that Sunday evening over a quarter of a century ago, Mr. Wells and his Mercury players frightened a nation out of its wits with H.G. Wells' story, The War of the Worlds. Here's a brief excerpt. Ladies and gentlemen, we interrupt our program of dance music to bring you a special bulletin from the Intercontinental Radio News. At 20 minutes before 8 central time, Professor Farrell of the Mount Jennings Observatory, Chicago, Illinois, reports observing several explosions of incandescent gas occurring at regular intervals on the planet Mars. 
The spectroscope indicates the gas to be hydrogen and moving toward the Earth with enormous velocity. Professor Pearson of the observatory at Princeton confirms Farrell's observation and describes the phenomenon as, quote, like a jet of blue flame shot from a gun, unquote. We take you now to Grover's Mill, New Jersey. Ladies and gentlemen, this is Carl Phillips again, out at the Wilmot Farm, Grover's Mill, New Jersey. Professor Pearson and myself made the 11 miles from Princeton in 10 minutes. Well, I hardly know where to begin. Paint for you a word picture of a strange scene before my eyes, but something out of a modern Arabian night. Well, I just got here. I haven't had a chance to look around yet. I guess that's it. Yes, I guess that's the thing directly in front of me. Half buried in a vast pit. Must have struck with terrific force. The ground is covered with splinters of a tree. It must have struck on its way down. But I can see the object itself doesn't look very much like a meteor. At least not the meteors I've seen. It looks more like a huge cylinder. Has a diameter of, um, um, what would you say, Professor Pearson? What's that? Uh, what would you say, uh, what's the diameter of this? About 30 yards. About 30 yards. The metal on the sheath is, well, I've never seen anything like it. The color is sort of yellowish-white. It's curious spectators now are pressing close to the object in spite of the efforts of the police to keep them back. They're getting in front of my line of vision. Uh, 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 would you mind standing one side, please, while the police are pushing the crowd back? Now, we're not more than 25 feet away. Uh, can you hear it now? Uh, Professor Pearson? Yes, Mr. Uh, can you tell us the meaning of that scraping noise inside the thing? Possibly the unequal cooling of its surface. I see. Do you still think it's a meteor, Professor? I don't know what to think. The uh, metal casing is definitely extraterrestrial. Uh, not found on this Earth. Friction with the Earth's atmosphere usually tears holes in a meteorite. This thing is smooth and... You can see a cylindrical shape. Something's happening. Ladies and gentlemen, this is terrific. This end of the thing is beginning to flake off. The top is beginning to rotate like a screw, and the thing must be hollow. He's moving! Keep back there! Keep back there! Keep those men back! Keep those men back! Keep those back! Well, ladies... Keep off! The top blew! Look out there! Stand back! Ladies and gentlemen, this is the most terrifying thing I've ever witnessed. Wait a minute. Someone's crawling out of the hollow top. And if you were one of the few that stayed tuned to the very end of the program, you heard... This is Orson Welles, ladies and gentlemen. Out of character, to assure you that the War of the Worlds has no further significance than as the holiday offering it was intended to be. The Mercury Theater's own radio version of dressing up in a sheet and jumping out of a bush and saying boo. Starting now, we couldn't soap all your windows and steal all your garden gates by tomorrow night, so we did the best next thing. We annihilated the world before your very ears and utterly destroyed the CBS. You will be relieved, I hope, to learn that we didn't mean it and that both institutions are still open for business. So goodbye, everybody, and remember, please, for the next day or so, the terrible lesson you learned tonight. That grinning, glowing globular invader of your living room is an inhabitant of the pumpkin patch, and if your doorbell rings and nobody's there, that was no Martian. It's Halloween. Well, as Mr. Wells said, it was just a Halloween hoax. Orson Wells has been a giant in the entertainment world, motion pictures, stage productions, radio, and television. But I think his first and lasting love will be radio. Did you know that the first shadow, and this was back in 1937, was played by Orson Welles? <laughs> Who knows 
is what evil lurks in the hearts of men. <laughs> the shadow knows. <laughs> the weed of crime bears bitter fruit. Crime does not pay. The shadow knows. <laughs> Orson Welles also did a 15-minute show during the latter part of 1945. He just sat there and talked, and that's all he had to do. This is Orson Welles. Where you live, has the world come to an end? Around here, everything seems fairly normal. But according to a man over in Pasadena, the whole works were supposed to be all washed up the day before yesterday. A number of his ardent followers prepared themselves for the explosion by saying their prayers and holding their ears. But my best information is that the world, including Pasadena, is still open for business. But the prophet, occupationally dauntless, is back at his trade. It's the queerest of all trades, this soothsaying. And whether plied by statesmen or phrenologists, the most dispensable. We've beheld our military leaders, heavy with wisdom and gold braid, recording their guesses on many a front page and getting it wrong every time. And then there's Drew Pearson. As a Washington reporter, he's one of our most valuable institutions. But I think my friend Drew is most diverting in those eerie moments when he picks up his little crystal ball and reads the future. And most of the time, Pearson the Prophet gets it right. Accepting only his public guessings, which after all are based on Drew's own canny observation, I take a poor view of all forms of rune casting, augury, bump and wrinkle reading, and horoscope making. Be it political or personal, I think fortune telling is the bunk. Although I now propose to peer into the future and once upon a time myself broadcast some trifling threats concerning the world's ending, don't think I take myself as seriously as the man in Pasadena. It is not generally known in the typical Drew Pearsonian phrase, and it will be officially denied. But the fact is that I was not born with a veil over my face, and when a babe, I was not stolen away by the gypsies. During the Second World War, Orson Welles traveled extensively for the armed services with his Mercury Wonder Show, a magic show in which he would spend his time sawing Rita Hayworth in half. He also appeared on many armed forces radio service shows, including this G.I. Journal program. Hello, G.I. Journal, Editor-in-Chief Orson Welles speaking. Hello? What? You want to run an ad in our paper? Okay, I'll write it down. Go ahead. Marine Sergeant would like to take attractive young Southern Belle for trolley car ride. Object, clang, clang, clang. Okay, Sarge, that'll be in tomorrow's paper. Now, let's see, where did I put my secretary? Oh, yeah, she's in the filing cabinet under S. It's time to let her out. Yes, Mr. Wells. Good morning, Miss Clinch. How did you rest? Terribly. Why can't I sleep in the wastebasket where there's Samir? Always complaining. Well, I'm tired of sleeping in my drawers. They're not your drawers. <laughs> They're not your drawers. They're mine. mine. I don't care whose they are. They don't fit. <laughs> Yes, since you've been sleeping in the files, I've noticed a pronounced bulge around miscellaneous. <laughs> but enough of this bickering about the housing shortage. Uh, <clears throat> let's get to the business of publishing a newspaper. 
Did you make those modest changes I suggested? Yeah. There's a picture on the front page of Orson Welles' publisher. Good. A picture of Orson Welles' star reporter, a picture of Orson Welles' sports editor, and a picture of Orson Welles before and after taking Orson Welles. Well, I can take it. Now, how about the glamour page? Who's the pinup picture this week? Uh, Carol Landis's body. A strapless bathing suit and your head. How do we look? Well, Carol's figure came out fine, but your head had to be continued on page 12. <laughs> Why don't you stop putting these fake photographs in the paper? Oh, what's wrong with them? Last week we ran a picture of Dorothy L'Amour's lovely face and my beautiful body, and it's wrong. We got a lot of letters on that one. Yeah, but most of them said, has this accident been reported? <laughs> Nonsense. In that so wrong, they couldn't tell me from Dorothy L'Amour. Yeah, except for one thing. What's that? Where she curves, you're A-W-O-L. And now here's Mr. Wells as he presents a spoof on daytime radio serials. Now, Orson, I've got a favor to ask. I've heard so much about G.I. Journal's contribution to daytime radio drama. Are you planning anything special for this edition? Well, I'm glad you asked that, Faye. I was wondering how we were going to get into this little thespic epic, one that's guaranteed to set radio back a good ten years. A little music, if you please. The makers of Root Voot, the sensational new vitamin food for flowers, present the ups and downs of Brenda Scuttlebutt, Girl Yo-Yo. <laughs> But first, a word from our sponsor. Men! Men, do you like to putter around your garden with an old pot? Would you like to know the new modern way to keep your plants from falling down? <laughs> then get Root Voot, the new product that'll make your night bloomers snap to attention. <laughs> Every drugstore has Root Voot. Ask for the new, convenient, pocket-sized, 12 feet by 9. And remember our guarantee. If you think you've gotten gypped by buying Root Voot, don't grouse about it. Think of us. We got warehouses full of the stuff. <laughs> and now for our story, the ups and downs of Brendel Scuttlebutt, Girl Yo-Yo. You remember that yesterday Brenda drank the iodine before the cops came, but they gave her the third degree and pumped it out of her. In the meantime, Harvey, Brenda's cousin by a former marriage, has gone to Squire Alberts to inquire about Larry, who received the tragic letter from Mrs. Philpott's nephew, Richard, who told him of the split-up between Bernice and Fitzroy, the butcher's son, who happened to see Charles and Julius leaving the mysterious Grayson house on that bitter afternoon in December before it was set on fire by the gang of counterfeiters. Naturally, Brenda was a little confused by all this. <laughs> Especially since Dr. Peterson had told her that little Nancy would recover and we meet her this morning in her little room. Watching, waiting, hoping. Suddenly, there's a knock on the door. The door opens and Brenda speaks. No, no, no. It can't be you. It can't be you. Tune in tomorrow. <laughs> In 1967, Orson Welles appeared on the Dean Martin Show on NBC television. He made a special trip from Europe and was here for just a few days to record the show. I was there, and it was a great thrill to just sit in the audience and watch and listen to an artist of the stature of Orson Welles. 
Dean asked me if I'd do a little Shakespeare. I decided to do something from The Merchant of Venice. You know, Shakespeare said about everything that needs to be said on every subject, and I, I think on the matter of bigotry, nobody has ever spoken out as well as he did 300 years ago, so I'm going to do a short scene from The Merchant of Venice. You must imagine that I'm Shylock, an old Jewish moneylender who lives in the Jewish ghetto of Venice, hated by the Christians, and he is approached by his old enemy, the merchant Antonio wants to borrow 3,000 ducats. 3,000 ducats? It's a good round sum. Three months from 12, and if we see the rate. Signor Antonio, many a time and oft, on the Rialto, you have rated me about my monies and my usances. Still have I borne it with a patient shrug for sufferance. It's the badge of all our tribe. You call me misbeliever, cutthroat dog, and spit upon my Jewish kebadim. And all for the use of that which is mine own. How like a fawning publican he looks. He has disgraced me and hindered me half a million. Laughed at my losses, mocked at my gains, scorned my nation, thwarted my bargains, cooled my friends, heated mine enemies, and what's his reason? I am a Jew, but not a Jew. Eyes, but not a Jew. Hands, organs, dimensions, senses, affections, passions, fed with the same food, hurt with the same weapons, subject to the same diseases, heated by the same means, warmed and cooled by the same winter and summer as a Christian is. If you prick us, do we not bleed? If you tickle us, do we not laugh? If you poison us, do we not die? And if you wrong us, Shall we not revenge? If we are like you and the rest, we will resemble you in that. If a Jew wrong a Christian, what is his humility? Revenge. If a Christian wrong a Jew, what should his sufferance be by Christian example? Why revenge? The villainy you teach me I will execute. And it shall go hard. But I will better the instruction. up another program. I hope you'll join me next time for more stars and personalities from radio programs of the past. Mr. Wells would always sign off his program with... This is Orson Wells, who remains, as always, obediently yours. And this is Frank Brzee in Hollywood, California, for the golden days of radio.
This is the United States Armed Forces Radio and Television Service.